again, we uh, are continuing our study of the uh, book of Hebrews, uh, which has taken us uh, into chapter 11, which of course is known as the great hall of fame of faith. And in this chapter, uh, we are given uh, 20 examples of faith. Uh, directly out of the pages of uh, the Old Testament Scripture. Now, it is extremely important, and I just want to remind us of this, uh, to put chapter 11 within the larger context of the book of Hebrews. The book was written to Hebrew Christians, folks that had been converted out of Judaism to Christ. And shortly after their conversion, uh, they faithfully endured persecution that occurred in 49 AD under the Roman Emperor Claudius. And in that persecution, these Hebrew Christians suffered not only uh, banishment uh, from the city of Rome, uh, but they also uh, had lost uh, much of their property. Their property was seized and taken from them, and uh, many of them were imprisoned. Now, when the book of Hebrews is written, it's 15 years later, around 64 A.D., and they are facing a much more severe persecution under the Roman emperor Nero. Uh, this persecution involved the loss of life. There were just horrific uh, executions along the lines of what we're seeing today by the Islamic uh, terrorists. The Hebrew believers had grown weary. Uh, they were tired of sustaining uh, their commitment to Christ, living in a culture that had become so hostile uh, to their beliefs and to their values. Uh, time and fear just began to erode at their commitment uh, to Christ. In the earlier persecution, they were bold uh, to take their stand for Christ, and they stood their ground. Now, in this persecution under Nero, they had become very timid, and they were more in retreat than advancing for Christ. Earlier, they regarded their property as being expendable in the cause of Christ. Now, they were emotionally unprepared for the risk of loss of property and life. Uh, we know from the book that some of the members, uh, as a result of the persecution, had actually withdrawn from the Christian community out of fear. And among those who remained... There was just a general loss of confidence in God. And then when we come to chapter 10, verse 36, the author, who really had a pastor's heart, that really loved these people, and it's very obvious he knew them well and was very close to them, he hits the nail right on its head, what their greatest need was. He says in verse 36, "...you have need of endurance." You have a need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Their great need in their trial was endurance. Now, what is endurance? Endurance is staying true to Jesus Christ 
to the very end. Staying true to Jesus to the very end, regardless of the cost that's required, confident that the, now listen now, confident that the reward Christ promises is better than anything this world can offer. That's endurance. Endurance is staying true to Jesus to the very end. No matter the cost, confident that the reward of Christ is worth it all. It's better than anything this world can offer. And of course, endurance is only made possible by faith. Faith in the faithfulness of God to keep His promise. Even when the realization of the promise may not right now be in sight. Matter of fact, it's interesting, every single example of faith in Hebrews 11 has this one thing in common. And here it is. They all celebrate the reality of future blessings, which are certain because they are grounded in the absolute reliability of God to keep His promise. That's what every one of these examples have as their common denominator. They, these individuals are just celebrating the reality of future blessing, which right now they can't see. Well, right now they can't touch it. But they're certain of it because it's rooted, grounded in God's reliability to keep His promise. And that's why we read in verse 1 of Hebrews 11 that faith is what? It is the assurance of things what? Hope for. The conviction of things not seen. Well, what is hoped for? What is not being seen at the present? The fulfillment of God's promise. But faith is that confidence that God will be true to His promise, that I can hold on, and it's the conviction of things not seen. See, for the Christian, uh, for you and I who are believers, faith in our future hope is what provides the courage and the endurance to face our present trials. And this was exactly the message these Hebrew Christians needed as they faced persecution. And this is exactly the message you and I need today as we face our trials and tribulations. Now, we have already looked in our study at the first three examples of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Abel, uh, Enoch, and Noah. Uh, We have begun to look at the example of Abraham's faith in verses 8 and 10, which focuses, these verses simply focus on Abraham's initial response of faith to God when God called him to leave his native land, Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, to go uh, to a land that God was going to give him, although he did not know where that would be, he had no road map, He just had to step out uh, one step at a time and uh, trust God. Now, I entitled the message, Imitating uh, the Faith of Abraham. And there are three lessons that we learn about faith from Abraham's uh, initial response to follow God's call. And the first lesson we have already covered in uh, previous messages. So let's just briefly review it and then move to the next lessons. Uh, Now, let's begin, if you have your Bibles, turn them to Genesis 12. Let's just get the historical background one more time. We won't belabor this because we already covered in detail a couple of weeks ago, 
but again, just to remind ourselves of the historical background that the author of Hebrews is referring to. And in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 5, we find when God called Abraham, who was a pagan idolater, uh, to leave everything and to uh, follow him. Look at uh, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. And as we mentioned, what makes this interesting is not only was God calling Abraham to leave everything that was familiar with him uh, to go for a land that he didn't even know where it was, uh, but at this point he had, what, no descendants. Uh, Abraham and Sarah were childless. Uh, There was apparently an infertility issue uh, in, in their lives. And then verse 4, So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot, Lot with him, uh, who was his nephew. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And I think that's interesting. Uh, this wasn't some uh, uh, young guy that uh, could just pick up and leave. I mean, Abram had roots here. We know from what he took that he was a very wealthy man. I already mentioned to you that where he lived was one of the wealthiest, most advanced cities in the world at that time. And he left all of that uh, to follow God. And it says, uh, And Abram took Sarah, Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, that's the historical background. Now, what was the first lesson that that, uh, we learned concerning faith? Get it down in your notes. And this, again, is review. The heart of faith listens when God speaks, trusts when God promises, and obeys when God commands. The heart of faith, the heart of true faith, biblical faith, what is it? Well, it listens when God speaks, it trusts when God promises, and it obeys when God commands. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was received for an inheritance, and he went out. Don't miss this last phrase, and he went out not knowing where he was going. God appears, he says, Abraham, follow me, I'm going to give you an inheritance. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you descendants to fill that land. And through your family, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. But again, no road map. I had no idea how long the journey would be, where it would be. He just had to take one step at a time, and he had to follow God. Now, we covered that. Now, let's move uh, to the new material now. Let's move to those second and third lessons we can learn from his response of faith to God's initial call. Here's the second truth. The focus of faith, we've looked at the heart of faith, which listens to God when He speaks, trusts when He promises, obeys when He can. Well, here's the focus of faith. It's God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness to keep His promises, with their fulfillment being better than anything this world can offer, which we've already alluded to, which makes the believer 
an alien in this world. Now, I'm using the biblical language, and of course, that would be synonymous to a foreigner in this world. Look at Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 9. By faith, he, Abraham, lived as an alien, or you could put foreigner, in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, of course, Isaac being his uh, future son, Jacob his grandson, fellow heirs of the same promise. In other words, Abraham could never settle down and be comfortable living in this world. Why? Because God had offered something better. It was that holy dissatisfaction, that discontent, as he was following after the prize that God had offered him. He was now a citizen of heaven. What does Philippians 3.20 says? For our citizenship is in heaven. Not here on earth, but in heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, Abraham realized he was just temporarily traveling through the earth as he made his way to his ultimate home and the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. Therefore, here on earth, he lived as an alien. He lived as a foreigner, never feeling at home. He never fit in with the status quo. His standard of morality, his worldview, all of that was rooted in the very character of God, which put him in repeated collisions with the inhabitants of this world. As the New Testament says, we are in the world, but what? Not of the world. Now look at the next statement in your notes. The believer, as an alien or as a foreigner, lives above the present world. Lives above the present world. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews 11, which gives further commentary concerning Abraham's faith. It says, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, referring to, for Abraham, Ur, they would have had opportunity to return. Now, folks, I absolutely love the sentiment that is expressed in these two verses. Abraham and Sarah left their native country to seek another country, a new country that was promised to them by God. This means they abandoned everything that they had once held dear. And they did that again to follow the prize of God, realizing it was so much better. They said goodbye forever to their former life, to their old life. They left without looking back because of what was promised ahead was so much better. Notice, no physical barrier prevented them from returning to their old life. I mean, at any point, they could have just reversed course and said, this is stupid, this is silly, and gone back to their old life. But the bridges had been burned. It had been burned in their minds. And their hearts were set on following God. And this kept them on a plane that literally was above this present world. Now, 
I want to put some, uh, some meat to this, some practicality to this. The Apostle Peter tells us in very practical terms what this means to us as believers living in the world today. What does it mean to live as a foreigner? What does it mean that our citizenship is not here on earth, but it is in heaven? And so look there in your notes. And uh, Peter emphasizes several things about being a foreigner here on earth. First, we're to live a clean life. We're to live a clean life. And that, that means you are to abstain first from what? Evil desires. We're to live a clean life. In other words, as Abraham realized, now his life was rooted in God's character, and his life was to reflect God's character, values, and perspective, he realized he had to abstain from evil desires. It's like you and I need to abstain from evil desires. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens, there's that word again, as foreigners and strangers here on earth to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Now, before we go any further, it is important to see the the context in which this admonition is found. In the previous verses, and you can turn there if you would like, 1 Peter 2, but I just want to show you that he emphasizes who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. In verse 5, he says, "...you are living stones." being built up as a spiritual house or a temple for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. Verse 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Verse 10, For You once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In other words, what is he saying? He's saying, as we move into verse 11, about as aliens abstaining from evil desires, that our earthly behavior is to square with what? Our heavenly benefits. We're to live consistent with who we are in Christ. See, for unbelievers, earth is a playground where the flesh is free to romp and be wild, run wild. But for the believer, earth is a battleground, a battleground. And during our brief deployment here, during our brief cure of duty here, we are to stay true to who we are. And we are soldiers of Christ. We are to always demonstrate our true colors. And we also need to realize, extremely important, that non-Christians are watching us all the time. And those non-Christians are going to determine the truth of the message of Christianity on the basis of how we live. How we work, how we handle life's adversities, how we conduct ourselves with our family. The God we communicate to them is not the God we talk about, it's the God whose life we live out before them. So in light of that, Peter says, Beloved, 
In light of who you are, this holy nation, this royal priesthood of God, he says, I urge you as foreigners, as strangers, to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Now, what does he mean by fleshly lust? Again, we don't need to make this complicated. He's talking about selfish desires. Uh, turn over to 1 John chapter 2, and here's a good commentary on fleshly desires uh, living in this world. 1 John chapter 2, look at verses 15, 16, and 17. It says, Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, well, what does he mean by not loving the world? How is the world being defined here? Well, here it is, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world, all those lusts, those desires, they're passing away. And also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. What is the lust of the flesh? It's just the desire for self-gratification. It is a desire for me to be pleased, where everything is all about me. Life circles around me. People are there to serve me. And what is the lust of eyes. It's just this insatiable desire to have more and never be satisfied until you have more. And when you have more, you're still never satisfied. And it's just this insatiable longing and, and, and thirst and hunger to have more, 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 more. What I can see, what I can touch. And then what's the pride of life? That desire to be exalted for self-promotion, uh, to, to receive the applause of men. So John says, that's what the world is. The, the world is all about uh, getting your own way. And when people get in your way, then you fight them. Because you're going to get your way. And the world is all about getting more. Just affluence. And, and enjoying it. And then it's all about self-promotion. About exalting oneself. And receiving the applause of men. And see, Peter is saying, you're to abstain from those fleshly lusts. That wage war against your soul. You're not to give in to selfishness. You're not to give in to materialism. You realize as believers, the issue is not increasing your standard of living, but increasing your standard of what? Giving. And you're not to give in to a desire to promote self, because you exist to promote what? Jesus. The issue is not the spotlight getting put on you, but Jesus being center stage, the spotlight being put on Him, that people would forget the messenger to see only the Master working in and through us. So, what does it mean to live as a foreigner in the world? Well, we're to live a clean life, which means to abstain from evil desires, but it also means, look at the next point, to adorn yourself with winsome behavior. To adorn yourself with winsome behavior. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, the very first part of that verse. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Again, because they're watching. So keep your behavior excellent. Now, folks, hear me very carefully. 
because there's a great balance between this point and the first that we just shared. Christians should be defined more for who we are and what we do than what we don't do. Uh, the things we abstain from. Now, that is a big part of Christianity. I abstain from certain things because I esteem other things more valuable and precisely Jesus in following Him. But I want to be known as a believer for who I am and how that has changed my character, my conduct, my value, my attitudes, my uh, perspective in life. I mean, if being identified as a Christian is, is only made on the determination of what you don't do. I mean, then the most spiritual people are those that are buried out there in Park Hill. I mean, I call that graveyard Christianity. You know, that, that is graveyard Christianity. It's interesting, the word uh, excellent here in 1 Peter 2.12, the word literally means, let me give you some synonyms for this word. It means lovely. It means fine, it means winsome, gracious, fair to look at, noble. So Peter says, yes, you're to abstain from fleshly lust. You don't want to be entangled in the affairs of this world and lose sight of the prize of Christ. But at the same time as you follow Christ, you want your behavior to be winsome. You want it to be excellent. You want it to look fair so that it attracts unbelievers, so that they see your joy in the midst of adversity. They see your peace in the midst of the storm. They see a sense of direction in your life, a sense of purpose in your life. Look at the next thing. Not only are we to abstain from evil desires and to adorn yourself with winsome behavior, but also avoid leaving any room for slander. Avoid leaving any room for slander. First Peter 2, that latter part of that verse says, So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers. In other words, the thought is, okay, you're going to be slandered as a believer. You're going to be attacked. You're going to be persecuted. But make sure that they don't have any grounds for that attack. That you're living a life of integrity. Look at First Peter chapter 4. Great cross-reference here. This is what he's talking about. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at, uh, uh, look at verses 14 through 16. 1 Peter 4, verses 14 through 16, he says, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. Notice, you're going to be attacked, he says. But make sure they don't have any grounds for that attack. You're being attacked because of your righteous life in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not only does a believer, as an alien, live above this present world, but look at the next point in your notes. The believer, as an alien, longs to acquire a new world. We not only live above the present world, but we long to acquire a new world. Look at verse 13. And these died in faith. Talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles uh, on the earth. Now here's, here's the point that's being made here. And it's, and it's sort of a stunning 
truth when you try to put yourself in Abraham's shoes uh, to model his faith. Abraham promised, I mean, God promised to Abraham the land of Canaan. He promised him an inheritance, a new land, a new world, a new country. But do you know that during his life and the life of his son, Isaac, and the life of his grandson, Jacob, God gave him no inheritance, not even a foot of ground he could claim as his own. Matter of fact, the only land that Abraham ever owned was the tomb that he had to buy from a Hittite to bury his wife, Sarah. Now, just to get the feel for this, let's say God promised to you and to your descendants the country of Guatemala. So, stepping out on God's promise, you move your family Guatemala, only to live the rest of your life in a camper, traveling from place to place. You remain a foreigner without citizen rights, always an outsider, and you die as a foreigner, never seeing the fulfillment of God's promise. Folks, would that be a very easy life to live? Well, that's the life that Abraham lived. He was a nomad. He lived in tents. He never had roots. He never had a home of his own. He never saw the fulfillment of the promise in his lifetime. And and just think how difficult it would have been to explain his life to others, what he was doing. I mean, Abraham, let's be honest, he would have been perceived as an absolute fruitcake. I mean, just a nut. Just insane. You would have viewed him a very, very odd character. Now, going back to Abraham, although he never saw the fulfillment of the promise, his descendants did. Amen? They did. He eventually brought them, what, into the promised land. We even looked at some of that in uh, Hebrews 3 and 4. And he brought them into the promised land, and they did have... But the question is this. Okay, God stayed true to his family, although Abraham never saw the fulfillment of the promise. See, it goes back... To what I said, the one common denominator in all these examples of faith is the celebration of future blessing, which is absolutely certain because it's grounded in the promise of God, whether they see it or not in their lifetime. So what gave Abraham the patience? What gave him the endurance under certain circumstances to remain faithful to God? And and that brings us to the next point. The believer, as an alien, looks in anticipation to the next world, to the next world. In other words, Abraham, yes, he was here on earth, and he was following God, but he realized this was just a brief sojourn, just a brief deployment. And yes, God had given him promises related to this earth, but his ultimate focus was what? On the next world, on heaven. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. So lesson number one, from the example of Abraham's faith, the heart of faith listens when God speaks, trusts when God promises. 
and then obeys when God commands. The second lesson is the focus of faith is always God's faithfulness to keep His promises. With their fulfillment being better than anything this world can offer, which makes the believer an alien in this world, a, a foreigner that lives above the present world, uh, but of course looking, longing uh, for a new world, but the ultimate eyes on the next. And then look at the third and final truth as we close this morning. The ultimate goal of faith. Okay, we've looked at the heart of faith, we've looked at the focus of faith, but what's the ultimate goal of faith? The ultimate goal of faith is not the fulfillment of the promises. Again, when I say that, I don't mean that there's any question of the certainty that those promises will be fulfilled. But we're saying the ultimate goal is not the fulfillment of the promises, but to embrace the promiser. That's the ultimate goal. It's love for God. It's desire to embrace Him, to know Him. In this journey, as we walk with a faithful God, to be drawn into a deeper intimacy with Him. Look at 11.10. For He was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is who? Is God. That was the ultimate prize, not the land, not the fulfillment of the promises, but knowing the promiser and knowing intimacy with Him, to be lost in His presence, to be found in His likeness. Let me close, and I'll just close simply reading this. Uh, great correlation. Uh, if you want to turn there, Philippians chapter 3. This is where all of this should lead us, right here. To this type of attitude, to this type of perspective in life. In other words, this is where a life of faith will ultimately leave, lead every believer. Philippians 3. I'll read verses 7 through 14, and then we're finished. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them but rubbish, garbage, in order that I may gain Christ. And may be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, my efforts. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That I may know Him, Jesus, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, in order that I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or already have become perfect, but I press on, in order that I may lay hold of that for which also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, he's saying... What? Jesus has laid hold of me. He's captured me. He's apprehended me. Now my life is all about what? Apprehending the one who caught me. And knowing him. And then he says, I pray, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as laying hold of it yet. Verse 13. But one thing I do. And this was Abraham's life. And the life of every person of faith. 
One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies where? Ahead. Those future blessings which are certain because they are rooted in God's promise and His blessings are better than anything this world can offer. And then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray you would give us the faith of Abraham by your grace, that we would model his faith as believers, that when you speak, we would listen, and when you promise, we would believe, and when you command, we would obey. And that, Lord, you would give us a focus on your reliability, your faithfulness to keep your promises. Those promises which are better than anything this world can offer. And realizing that, Father, may we see our citizenship is not here on earth, it's in heaven. That we are mere sojourners here, foreigners, on a brief deployment, cure of duty. That through our winsome behavior, others might also join the journey and come to know you and love you and follow you. And then, Father, I pray you would bring us to that place of the ultimate goal of faith. We're more important than getting any type of outcome we're after in life. More important than any of that would be just knowing you. As we've said before in this study, where we would come to that place where we could truly say, Jesus is enough. Jesus is all I need. And Jesus satisfies. For it's in His name we do pray. Amen.